I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Even before the pandemic ravaged the country, some Americans struggled to keep their families fed. But a boost in federal funding from pandemic emergency funding helped make access to food more possible for many. Now, as those additional benefits have ended, demand at food banks is expected to balloon. And as some people go to food banks for the first time, the need for culturally diverse foods, ingredients, and recipes is stronger than ever. Joining me remotely, Kanan Thiruvangadam, director at Eastie Farm, an East Boston farm and community organization. Hi, Kanan. Hello, Kelly. Good to be with you. Good to have you. Also with me, Jennifer Johnson, executive director of Gaining Ground, an organic regenerative farm in Concord, Massachusetts. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Callie. Thanks for having me today. And Catherine D'Amato, president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks. Uh, Good to be with you. I want to be fully transparent about this conversation. Catherine and I uh, met in an event a couple of weeks ago, and she talked to me about culturally relevant food at food banks and the movement um, to make that possible and why it was important. And we're going to talk about that in this conversation. But we have to put it in the context of what has just happened, which is a cut in the pandemic error emergency funding affecting those people in Massachusetts who receive SNAP benefits, that Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits. Um, That cut has made a deep slash in their food budgets, and it means also an increase in the number of people who will be seeking food at food banks. So as these COVID SNAP benefits have um, extended, you're going to see families in Massachusetts will lose on average $151 per month. So this is a significant amount of money because of SNAP. For your listeners, they can go into the grocery store. They can they can get culturally appropriate foods. They can get things for their families. And not only is it SNAP that's ending, there are many other benefits that are ending at this time. So the impact that we anticipate and has already begun to happen is the 600 partners that we work with across Eastern Massachusetts, pantries, meal programs, you know, mobile market shelters, they are beginning to see that increase of individuals coming to their doors. So we expect to see more people using the emergency food system due to not having these resources that they have been, had over the last three years. And to be clear, your numbers were already up. Numbers right now, yes. COVID numbers or numbers from the beginning of COVID, Kelly, have not, they haven't rescinded. So when you think of numbers in Massachusetts, it was one in eight before COVID. It's now one in three. So therefore, the pressure of demand for food, and my colleagues on the call know this as well in their own work, there is more demand in the local community for access to healthy food. And then on top of these families needing just general assistance with food due to inflation, increased need, lots of other factors. This only exacerbates a very difficult situation. 
So, Jennifer, same question to you. Um, first, explain what regenerative, regenerative farming means, um, particularly in this context and what gaining ground your organization does to provide food for people who are food insecure. Since the beginning of our inception, Gaining Ground has grown food exclusively for people who are experiencing food insecurity. We have never sold a single fruit or vegetable. We have donated 100% of everything that we grow. And what we mean by regenerative is uh, we actually go beyond organic. Uh, we don't use any herbicides or pesticides at all, including those that are certified for organic use. And we really um, farm in a way that is climate friendly and resilient. Uh, which is important not only for the health of the land that we're on and also, um, you know, being able to deal with the climate changes that we're, you know, seeing and have seen over the course of the last couple of years. Um, but we've, we farm in a way that really centers people in our work. Um, you know, we, we are very mindful of uh, what we do on, on the, and the impact that it has on our employees, our volunteers, our partners, and definitely the people who receive our food. So, Jennifer, what um, in your giving, um, you can feel the impact of of what's happening on the other end with your through your partners uh, in terms of how much uh, you saw the need grow during COVID. We definitely saw the need, um, you know, more or less uh, triple at most of the organizations that we work with. Um, and we do have actually one direct di distribution program um, that is that we do run out of the farm. And, you know, that that program, uh, the number of participants tripled and has not gone back down um, since the start of the pandemic. And we always, uh, you know, throughout the years um, with the food that we've grown, some of our hunger relief partners have told us, yep, that's just the right amount. Um, some others have said, you know, we can always take more, but the universal um, feedback that we're getting from partners now is that they could definitely use uh, more food. And so, you know, we are trying to maximize the amount of, uh, that we can grow um, in a, in a, regenerative climate friendly way here on the farm. Uh, we actually have uh, extended our seasons um, by starting to grow year round in uh, structures called hoop houses that we have at the farm. And those uh, hoop houses essentially an unheated greenhouse. Uh, we're located in New England, um, which means of course that we are contending with um, you know, winter weather <laughs> and uh, not ideal growing conditions all of the time. But there are certain crops like uh, deep greens, leafy greens, uh, carrots, kale mixes uh, that we are able to grow year round now. And we started that in December, 2020, recognizing that of course, food insecurity is not seasonal. Kanan, you're one of the partners of Gaining Ground, um, but you are located in uh, Eastie. And that um, community was particularly hard hit during COVID because there were a lot of uh, essential workers there. So the work that you're doing on the farm, both working with folks uh, to and volunteers to provide uh, produce, changed somewhat during COVID. So you really had an opportunity to see uh, the impact of COVID. Because we're, we are on the ground and we're part of the community as EC Farm, we did see the impact of COVID on our community in particular. And one evidence is if you look at the ridership of the Blue Line after the shutdown was announced, it was the last line to see ridership decline. 
because people still had to keep working, finding whatever work they could to make ends meet. We talk about essential labor, but labor is essential for people to make ends meet. And when they couldn't do that anymore, there was no money to pay rent or buy food or buy medicine or buy diapers. And just to be clear, the the blue line goes into Easty, so. Right, right. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Yeah, the blue line goes from downtown into East Boston. So um, you could see direct um, impact of uh, the COVID by the folks continuing to work. But in terms of what your output was and your interaction with people who needed food, how would you describe the increase happening during COVID? This discussion belongs in the context of the community and how it suffered during COVID, right? I, I mentioned displacement briefly, and when people are displaced, they can't just take off from the community because the kids go to school there, they go to church here. And so they try to stick around, and that led to a lot of people moving in with family or friends, and that led to a lot of crowding, which made a lot of people extremely vulnerable, and they couldn't use the kitchen to eat food, to make food. So what we had to do was serve cooked hot meals to them. During the height of COVID, we served um, upwards of 5,000 hot meals per week to people. A lot of volunteers mobilized and great uh, restaurants like Bon Mi and Tawakal Halal Cafe stepped into work and produced these large number of meals at cost, meaning they were operating as if they were nonprofits. And then we would use a, an extensive volunteer network to serve folks. And that's when we discovered all the difficult situations that people are living in. And we got connected to over 600 families that we support in an ongoing manner to this day. I'm circling back to you now, Catherine. Why have you uh, become not aware, but 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 leaning toward or working toward trying to make the food that's available um, in um, the Greater Boston Food Bank and through the partnerships more culturally relevant? Why is that important? Well, DEI and inclusion is a core value at the Greater Boston Food Bank. Striving for equity, diverse responsiveness in our food distribution clearly impacts food and food acquisition and distribution. Uh, we work really closely with the organization. So you have 600 um, partner organizations in 190 different cities and towns. And in such, we are listening to what are the types of foods that matter? Because as you can imagine, we have multiple cultures yeah, throughout Eastern Massachusetts. And I'm very proud to say that produce is a produce, protein, and dairy are the top three items. And um, high utilization of nutrition comes into our work. But if you think about produce, you know, the items, you know, we are we have a great supply of bananas and plantains, mangoes, pineapples, uh, citrus, uh, carrot with carrots, potatoes, onions, which are fairly universal across cultures. And then cooking greens, you might see bok choy, different kinds of cabbage, different kinds of tomatoes, um, different you know Mazda flowers being purchased, um, making sure we have. Uh, kosher chickens, as an example. But there are many examples across our uh, Eastern Massachusetts community. There's a really very interesting one on AAPI communities in Quincy, where they've taken a really large step forward around making sure they have the ingredients for Chinese cuisines, you know, bok choy, daikon radish, soybeans, 
These are a number of things that then we can go and help provide. So we purchase over $50 million worth of product and farms like the two that are noted here today, over 35 farms we are able to purchase from during the growing season here in Massachusetts. So it matters. Well, this is Lisette Lee. She's executive director for Viet Aid. It's in Dorchester, and it um, caters to a, a population of, of food insecure folks who are for whom Vietnamese cuisine is is important to them. Um, here's what she says. For us, it's really simple. It's food that people from our community wants to eat. So it's food that's a staple part of the menu, part of the diet. So for us, that means an emphasis on Asian ingredients, Asian greens, things like jasmine rice, things like Japanese eggplants, whatever that we give out. We want to make sure that it doesn't go to waste. And now one of her clients is 71-year-old Tong Nguyen, and um, he told... um, through an interpreter, GBH's Sarah Betancourt, um, how he is able to make one of his favorite meals because a lot of what he can get at Viet Aid is culturally relevant food. So I'm going to go home and wash my water spinach and uh, pick them apart. And then I'm going to lightly boil them just for a few moments so that it gets soft and then take them out. And then I'm going to fry them, fry them with some oil, some garlic and some seasoning. A seasoning could range anything from like, you know, salt, sugar, garlic powder, anything like that. And then I eat it. They have a lot of nutrients and good vitamins and minerals that as an old person, I would really like to have in my body. Being a receiver of these bags is really helpful to me. Kanan, I thought it was interesting that something happened during during COVID when you were providing those meals, that you ran out of certain stuff, but then you mixed up some of, of what might be culturally relevant to one community to another and sent it out. And what happened? Tell us about that. Yeah, it was, it was sheer out of need. Uh, there was so much need that the volunteers would text back and say, um, I've been delivering and I ran out. So these were Latinx families and the food was produced by this Somali restaurant. And they were also willing to mobilize right there with us because you know we're all connected in this work. And they made this halal food and it has uh, chickpeas and spinach. It has chicken, so there was that as well. But it was all prepared with the Somali style, which is interestingly a combination of Italian and Indian style. So this food, these 20 families had never had. I heard back from just about every one of them. What is this? This is so flavorful. We we like it. And, you know, next time we have a need, maybe we would like to try this again. And then a couple of years later, I saw some of the families in the restaurant. This, this was an opportunity, sort of like discovered opportunity, but we really valued that and then went further with that by bringing bond me food that also came to a lot of people who have never tasted that and we had a similar feedback so i was really heartwarmed by this because while we're trying to be culturally relevant people are also open to trying other things and appreciating other things and that builds these bridges across cultures which is exactly what we need in a community for the community to be very strong Jennifer, one of the things that we know, particularly from immigrant communities, when you talk about foodstuffs, um, produce is usually right at the at the heart of that. And that's been the big issue across what food banks can provide, uh, as we've seen in the grocery store for people who can afford to go to the grocery store. Um, 
produce is the most expensive thing right now other than dairy products. And just to have fresh produce, such as the kind that you're producing um, through gaining ground, is incredibly um, important. And the last time that the SNAP benefits were increased, it was supposed to be so there would be enough for people to buy healthy produce. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, um, you know, obviously food is a is a human need. You know, we all we all need that in order to survive. Um, but the important part about food also when we think about it is that, you know, it's not just calories to fill bellies. It's we want to make sure that um, you know what we're what we're eating and what people have available to them is nourishing both in terms of body and soul. And you know when I, in my job I think a lot about food and um, I think that it's a not uncommon situation speaking with folks that you know people have a lot of great memories around food. Um, you know there's a whole connection. It's it, you know we we there is certain tastes that we desire, certain textures that we desire. And so it's really important for us uh, to be growing food that we know that people want to eat. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think Catherine had referenced this. Um, it, it does it doesn't do anybody any good if we're growing food that's just going to go to waste. Okay, I'd like each of you to to answer this because we started the conversation with you know the news of the moment about the cutbacks in the SNAP benefits, which is going to you know send people to food banks, likely make more people. Uh, more food insecure. Um, I should mention that at at this moment, the legislature is, um, at least the House, has approved part of Governor Healy's plan to um, offer up a three-month extension of those benefits, but only at 40 percent. So it's not even the, the full extra amount. But having said all that, what would each of you like uh, listeners to know about this moment of people in Massachusetts going over what some may describe to be a hunger cliff, despite your best efforts. Um, what is it that they should understand about food insecurity and and really how, how it impacts the people who are hungry and even the rest of the community? The first thing that people need is access to good information that they can act on. So on our website, eastfarm.com slash food, we provide the necessary information to people about what the sources of food are in the community, in the city, and in our state, and the federal programs as well that they have access to. We find that many people actually still do not know all the programs that they can avail, and even if they do, they don't know exactly how, in which case we offer a helping hand to get them set up. HIP is available in our state, Healthy Incentive Program, and that is another good way to get to produce. Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources does have several programs and organizations like ours are applying for those programs, getting funded, and then bringing produce through that to people. So basically what this means to people is to just connect with the local organizations. But I would also welcome for people who are in the Boston area to come to Easty Farm in East Boston and participate with us and get to know the programs that we have available Thank you. Jennifer? I would actually like to speak a little bit um, to the members of the audience who may be wondering how they can help. 
I invite them uh, to come out to Gaining Ground to visit our website, gainingground.org. We have over 3,500 volunteers who visit us each year and help in our work. And we'd love to have uh, individuals, families, groups, uh, and even corporate groups come out and join us in our hunger relief work. Okay, Catherine. The key for me is that hunger is an absolutely solvable problem. And as already noted, it's a human right. So we will be here, the Greater Boston Food Bank and the colleagues on the call as well, and so many other amazing innovative programs across our state are fighting to make sure that people have access to healthy food. Why does it matter? It contributes to their well-being, the well-being of their families, and ultimately the well-being of the communities that they live and work in. And that means that when people thrive, then our communities thrive. This is, as Massachusetts is a small enough state that I believe we can work together collaboratively to move people from hunger to health. So I'm hopeful. And with listening to my colleagues on the phone, I, I'm very hopeful. Greater Boston Food Bank serves 600,000 people a month. It's our intention to keep serving them and to do everything we can to provide greater access, healthier foods, and support our local communities in the best way that we can. Thank you all for joining me. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Kelly. Thank you. Kanan Thiru Van Gottam is a director at Eastie Farm, an East Boston farm and community organization. Jennifer Johnson is the executive director of Gaining Ground, an organic regenerative farm in Concord, Massachusetts. And Catherine D'Amato is the president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Jenny Firm is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.